it's uh, good to be here again. It's, uh, um, it's always great uh, to be in, in this congregation. Um, Andy claimed that he put something in this. Um, so I, I'm going to test it. Nah, it's just water. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's great to be here. You're doing a series on the Spirit. So let me, let me just start with here for a moment. Sometimes the Spirit comes, you know, like wind. And that's a, there are stories in the Bible, the Old Testament and New, of the Spirit coming like wind. And when the wind comes, the wind can rearrange things, change them around, um, change an era. There are whole eras that change because of the Spirit blowing in a certain way. Or, or, or a, a congregation, or a movement. Uh, Pentecost, Liz just told that story, a bit of that story. Pentecost was a, a, a wind event, right? The, the Spirit came with, with wind and fire and rested on the, the people and, uh, and they began to speak, not, not in tongues in the, in the sense that we usually use that word, but in languages, all the languages of the world. It's a symbol that the rest of the book of Acts is going to be the spreading of the church into the world. And now the church speaks every kind of tongue and language in the world. Sometimes, though, the Spirit comes as breath. The ruach, the Hebrew word for spirit, and pneuma, the Greek word for spirit, both mean wind and breath. And when you think of breath, what you think of is that story in the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 2. And in the story, God, you understand that this is not about how things happen, but about who we are. God puts his hands into the mud and forms the shape of a human being. That's who we are, first of all. We are dust of the earth. We are DNA. We are biology, molecules, atoms, all of that. We belong to the earth. And then God breathes into that lifeless form, and it comes alive. Who are we as human beings? We are the creatures that breathe God. And when we don't breathe God, we are as good as dead. The passage that I want to talk about today doesn't actually use either wind or breath. It, it speaks of the Spirit in terms of presence. But it's more breath-like than wind-like. And it's a passage that has fascinated me for a long time. And, and uh, when uh, Jenna uh, contacted me and said, we're going to do the Spirit, so you, what, what you would like to do on the Spirit, um, I, uh, I, I picked this passage in part because I wanted to work on it. And I have worked on it. And, um, and the more I, I spend time with this passage, the more powerful it becomes. I think it's one of, the, one, one of the most significant passages about the Spirit or about anything else in the New Testament. It's from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, and I'll read verses uh, 14 through 18. Well, 4 through 18, I'm sorry. So, uh, Paul says, such confidence, boldness, I, I would probably translate it, 
We have through Christ before God. You, you want a clip for me right now, just while I uh, kind of go through the scripture? Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves. The, the word there means equal. Not that we are equal to this uh, in ourselves, to claim anything for ourselves. But our, our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And now if the ministry that brought death, which is engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And if the ministry that brought us condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came in glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Once again, the idea of boldness. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains whenever the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. And then pay a special attention to these verses now. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. And now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, that Paul, that this letter, that 2 Corinthians, we call it 2 Corinthians, although there might have been three letters to the Corinth, um, maybe even more, but uh, three that we know about and one we've lost. So, uh, so this is the second in, in our numbering of them. And, and in this letter, as in so many of Paul's letters, he starts off by defending his ministry. He's under attack. Um, ministry is hard, you know, it really is, it's hard. It was hard then, it's hard now, it's always hard. People are under attack, pastors are under attack often, you know. It's hard to make your way through all of that, and Paul always seems to be defending himself. And so he starts off, the, the very first, uh, right after the, the prayer, you know, you get the greetings and then the prayer, and, and, and then a, a little bit of update on his status. Paul says this in, in verse 12 of the first chapter, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves. Actually, I have that. Yeah, I, there it is. Uh, that we have uh, that our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations to you, with integrity and godly sincerity. Now, you don't say that unless you've been attacked, and some people have said you haven't conducted yourself with conducted yourself with integrity or with um, with godly sincerity. 
And so he goes on, and then in the second chapter, he defends himself and talks about how, you know, he wanted to make this kind of a plan, and then it got interrupted, and there's all kinds of, of issues. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of chapter 3, the part that I didn't read, Paul says, first, first verse, am I sounding a little defensive here? I mean, he doesn't quite use those words. But if he had written it in, in 2022, that's what he, he would have said. Now, am I, am I sounding a little too defensive here? And then he says, I don't need to be defensive. I was the one who founded this church. And then he starts to think about his ministry. And when he thinks about his ministry, Paul, who's steeped in the scriptures, thinks about a story. It's in Exodus 34. Moses and the glory. It's a story about a man who often was in his own ministry challenged, uh, up against it, Moses. And this is the second time he comes down the mountain in Exodus 34. The first time he comes down the mountain, if you recall, Exodus 32, he goes up the mountain and he gets the, the, the tablets, we call them the tablets of the law, they're, they're called in this section of Exodus, the ten words. They are actually the stipulations of a covenant. This, this is the arrangement. God says to the people of Israel, if you want to be my people, this is the kind of people you ought to be. No other gods. You, uh, you don't make graven images. You don't try to make God in your image. You, uh, you don't swear by anything other than the solemn name of God. You, uh, you, you keep the Sabbath. You honor your parents, on and on. And, and he comes down the mountain, and when he comes down the mountain, what he sees is a golden bull. I know we, we always translate it. When I was in Sunday school, it was always the golden calf. But this is not any kind of little gambling calf, you know, uh, running around in the fields um, someplace out here in Abbotsford or something. Um, they still have calves in Abbotsford? Um, city keeps spreading that way. The, uh, it, th this is a bull. Th this is the people of Israel. Now, they're not actually worshiping the bull. They're worshiping through the bull because they want to shape God. It's a kind of prayer. It's a prayer which is saying, this is the kind of God we want. We want a God who is a bull-like God with all the implications of that, the fertility and the aggression and the probably patriarchy and all of those things, all wrapped up in this symbol. And Moses, coming down the mountain with the tablets of the covenant, which represents a very different kind of God, takes the tablets and throws them on the rocks, and they break into a thousand pieces. End of that first story. But in Exodus 34, God shows them grace and invites Moses back up the mountain. And once again, he sits 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord. And this time, when he comes down the mountain, he comes down the mountain with the tablets, but it's not the people we're looking at in the story, but Moses. Because Moses is different. His face is shining. He, he is, in fact, so different that they don't recognize him at first, not even his own brother. They start running from him 
because he seems somehow trans. It reminds me of the resurrection stories. You remember in the resurrection stories, the, the, the disciples always at first don't recognize Jesus and then they see him. There's a kind of difference about Moses. His face is shining. In Hebrew, the word for the, the rays that go out from his face is very similar to the word for horn. And in uh, the, the Renaissance, actually, in, in most of Western history, um, it got interpreted as being horns. And so I just thought I'd throw this slide up here because um, this is Michelangelo's uh, statue of Moses. And you'll notice that Michelangelo has put a very nice set of horns on the head of, of Moses. All because somebody couldn't read Hebrew right. Um, but I think it's great. It gets at least across the idea that Moses had changed. And so then what does he do? He, he puts on a mask. You know, the first time you get a mask in, in the Bible, right? I, I don't know what you can do with theology of mask here. But um, he, uh, he puts on a mask, a veil, we usually translate it, but I think veil is just kind of a nice word for mask. And, and um, it covers his face so that when he teaches the people, it comes out every day and he teaches the people, when he teaches the people, they can stand in his presence and look at him without being overwhelmed by the glory. And then... He goes back into the place where he meets God, the, the tent of meeting out on the edge of the camp. And there he takes off the mask and is in the presence of God. That's the story. So Paul gets this in a way that I think we often don't. We, we, we have not advanced very much in how we read the Scriptures. What we've tended to do is to read the Scriptures absolutely flat. I was taught to read the Scriptures in some ways kind of flat, but Paul never reads them that way. You, I, I kind of highlighted when I went through that passage all the times that he talks about how we, 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 uh, we do things with boldness. The boldness is in part in how he interprets Scripture, what he sees in the Scriptures. And he understands that this passage is not about Moses the man. What do we know about Moses the man? It's about Moses, the Word of God, Moses the Scriptures. It's about the Torah. When Jesus is... is is, talks about the Bible of his day, such as the Bible existed in that day. He talks about Moses and the prophets. What do we read when we read Moses? It's the question of that passage. What do we read the scriptures for? And the answer is, for the glory. For the glory. We think we read it sometimes for the rules or, or for uh, the instruction, the, the theology of it, and we write biblical theologies of this or that because we want to get it all down there. And, 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 and that's important. Moses spends his days teaching the Israelites the Torah, the rules, the theology, everything that it represents. But under it all is the glory.
the glory. Let, let, me, let me use a little analogy. It's actually one that Paul himself uses, although not quite in this way. He uses it in Galatians, and one of the texts that Jenna had up uh, for the baptism was a text from Galatians that quoted from that section of Galatians in Galatians 3. He, he talks about us as being children who then become mature. When we, we, you become mature, then you get a kind of freedoms that you don't have when you're not mature. There's a lot in the Bible, in the New Testament, about Christian maturity. And, and when, you, when you're mature, you have freedom, a certain kind of Biblical, holy freedom. Okay. But in the beginning, you think it's about the rules. Maybe that's important. When you're a kid, this is my analogy. When you're a kid, you grow up, and, and your parents, if your parents are wise, they give you rules, right? Some parents more, some parents less. Some parents' rules are wise. Some parents' rules aren't so wise. But they give you rules, and when you're a kid, you think that it's all about the rules, and you're always negotiating the rules, if you're like me, or, or getting right up to the edge of them and then not quite going over, but, you know, getting, um, getting as close to the edge of them as you can. Rules about, you know, when you're a teenager, about when you're going to come in, when you're younger, about where you can go, what you can touch, what you can't touch, all these rules, and you think it's all about the rules, and then one day you grow up, and not one day, but you grow up. It takes a while to grow up. And when you get grown up, you start to realize it isn't about the rules. It's not about the, it never was about the rules. It's about the love. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying it's not about the rules. The, the letter kills. The letter condemns. The letter brings death. The, the letter, he says, if all you have is the letter, you will not get anything except condemnation. And people who read the Bible simply for the letter are always condemning other people. Because that's all they have. But it's not about the rules. It's about the glory. It's about the glory. The glory that still shines out of the Torah. He, he puts us in front of the Torah and he says, when you read the Torah, you read it for the rules and all you see are the rules, but you see the, around the edge of the mask, you see the glory leaking out. But imagine now that the veil is taken away. He, he, he makes a brilliant kind of exegetical move here Paul does something that maybe none of us would have thought of in the beginning he puts us in the place of the Israelites that's where the story puts us we are in the place of the Israelites Moses comes out from the tent of the meeting and he teaches us and we learn we learn the Torah and then we try to do it the best we can but he says what about if you put yourself in the position of Moses and you go into the tent of meeting, into the place where you meet God, what do you do? You take off the mask. As I was working through this, I thought to myself, I probably ought to conjure some with that, you know. What does it mean 
to take off your mask in the presence of God. What does it mean when Moses takes off his mask in the presence of God? Is that something that we do when we are in the presence of God, that we take off the mask, we drop the mask for a while? All of that's there, I think. And then he says, but when, when we, we got to slow down here a little bit, because this is, this is the part of that passage that I said we want to concentrate on. We want to go verse by verse here for a moment. When anybody turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That turn to the Lord is actually Paul's own uh, uh, insertion into the text. The, the Hebrew text and actually the Greek translation that Paul was probably using don't, don't have turn to. They have simply to enter. Whenever you enter the tent, whenever you come before God, is really what it says in Hebrew, then the veil is taken away. He takes the veil away. But Paul uses turn to, and he uses it intentionally, because that is the language of conversion in the New Testament. That's the language of turning to God. That's the language of repentance. That's the language of when we first come to Christ, we turn to Christ. Whenever you turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord. There's a question that arises in all the commentaries about who is the Lord here. And if you look in the Hebrew, it would be Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And of course, if you look in the New Testament, the Lord is usually Jesus. And there's an argument about, is this Jesus, is, is Paul talking about Jesus here? Or is he talking about God the Father here? But Paul cuts through all of that. He says the Lord, and, and the, the Greek grammar says, it's the, the Lord that I'm talking about here is the Spirit. And he's thinking still about the story. You, you, you know, when Paul, or when Moses comes back into the, the tent of meeting, who's there? What does he see? He doesn't see anything because you can't see God. But the Spirit is there. The presence is there. It is a place where he meets God in prayer. And when he does so, then... The veil, the mask, is taken away. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There we are, in the presence of God, on a different kind of relationship. We are no longer in the relationship of children, but we are in the relationship of God's beloved people. And we, there is a kind of freedom there. There is a freedom in, in the presence of the Lord, uh, the freedom of the Spirit, the freedom to, to be the kind of people that we need, to, to do the kinds of, to understand things in the way that we need to understand them. And then, one more verse. That's the end of the, that's the, end of the passage. This, this stunning verse, this verse that I want you to take home with you, verse 18, chapter 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate, the word means to mirror, to reflect back, what Moses did, reflecting back the glory of God on the mountain. 
We who with all with unveiled faces contemplate, mirror the Lord's glory, are being transformed. The word there is the word from which we get metamorphosis. We are being metamorphized. We are being changed. We are being altered with ever-increasing glory into his image. The image here is Christ. Into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, or I think I would translate it, for that is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit changes us. Now at this point in the message, I should spend some ample time, and I know I don't have any ample time, but I should spend some ample time on the whole concept of contemplation. The early church got this in a way that the modern church doesn't. The modern church, I think, has lost the idea of contemplation. The early church understood that at the very heart of the Christian life was contemplation. And what is contemplation? It's stopping. Taking off the mask. Being in the presence of God. In Greek, there are a couple of kinds of wisdom. There's the kind of wisdom, you know, street smart wisdom, the kind of wisdom you need tomorrow when you go to work, the kind of wisdom that you need to make it through your day. It's an important kind of wisdom, and it's recommended in the New Testament and in the Bible throughout. It's called phronesis. You need phronesis. But there's another kind of wisdom, which is called theoria. Theoria means seeing. It's like taking a hike, and if you're like me, you know, you, you, you get to the trailhead and you see it's 3.5 miles to this viewpoint, and so, you know, you, you, um, you hustle as fast as you can, that's what I usually do, and, and get there that 3.5 miles, and you've accomplished it, and there you are at the viewpoint, you look at it, you come back down. That's not hiking. That's the kind of goal-oriented behavior that characterizes us, especially in the West, and has characterized us for generations. Now what you do is you look and you see Theoria. You become part of the woods. You absorb it. We need to learn to do that. And if you do that, if you do that in the presence of the Spirit, if you do that in the face of Jesus Christ, you will slowly be transformed into His likeness. This is the work of the church. This is the work that we are doing this morning, right now. This is the work that we do individually in our prayer life. What we, the work we do is to stop trying to do it on our own and to contemplate face-to-face, the work of the Spirit in our lives. So I'm going to end with a story, a little story. My dad, the story is first of all about my dad. My dad was a little guy. He had an eighth-grade education. Um, Everybody loved him. It was almost the despair of my mother that, that no matter what she did, she never was going to be loved as much as he was. And, um, because he was just that kind of person, you know? He, he didn't start out as a Christian. He started off in a family that um, had a little bit of religious uh, kind of affiliation, but they never went to church. And, and gradually he came to Christ, and, and, and you could see the transformation in him, and in some respects... 
Everything I know about Christ, I know because looking at his face. There was another man. They had almost nothing in common. His name was Ainsley Barnwell, Ronald Ainsley Barnwell. He grew up in London. He used to uh, act on the London stage. Um, he was uh, educated at uh, Oxford. He was uh, a man who had read all the Puritans and knew them backwards and forwards. He, he told me one time, Ainsley did, that, um, that in the morning he read the Puritans, in the afternoon for light reading he read C.S. Lewis, and then he went back to the Puritans again in the evening. He was that kind of person. And yet, when they died, they died in the same summer. When they died, they more resembled each other than they didn't. Now, they were both little short guys, but, but there was a sense when you looked at them, you saw that they had in their face that they worshipped the same Lord. That's what we're called to here. Whether we grew up in London or in Linden or wherever, to so contemplate the face of the Lord with our unveiled faces to stand in the presence of God and we will be transformed from glory to glory, which is in fact not our but the work of the Spirit. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will send your Spirit into us. And that as your Spirit testifies to us, as we spend time in the presence, as, as, we, as we contemplate your Spirit, that you will transform us from glory to glory into your image so that when people look at us they will not see some raging bull but they will see you in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship the Heidelberg Catechism and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.